Hey everyone, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. Today we are covering The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. So he wrote it in Cuba in 1951 and it was his last major work of fiction before he died. He died by suicide in Idaho in 1961. This book won the Pulitzer Prize in 1953, and in 1954, Hemingway won the Nobel Prize in Literature. So, a little background on Hemingway. He was born in Illinois in 1899. Like I said, he died in 1961 in Idaho. He spent most of his life in Paris, the Florida Keys, and Cuba. He was an American writer and sportsman. He was really good at sports. A lot of people called him a brute. Most of his work was written and published in the 1920s through the 1950s. So he was an ambulance driver in World War I until he was wounded and sent home. But he writes a lot about his wartime experiences, especially in A Farewell to Arms, which is my favorite book of his. He had four wives in his life. He was best friends with F. Scott Fitzgerald, and they were part of the lost generation of the 1920s, which included, you know, all the artistic types of that time. Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Pablo Picasso. He lived in Paris in a bookstore at one point called Shakespeare and Company, and that was in the beginning stages of him becoming an author. I've actually been there and sat on his bed. It's still there. Okay, so The Old Man in the Sea tells the story of an old man named Santiago. He's a Cuban fisherman. He catches a giant marlin fish off the coast of Cuba, off the coast of Havana, and he's friends with a young boy named Manolin, who is like his first mate on the boat and helps him. It is widely believed that the character Santiago is based on two men who were first mates on Ernest Hemingway's boat that he had in Cuba. Their names are Carlos Gutierrez and Gregorio Fuentes. Hemingway has said that Santiago wasn't based on any specific person, so it could be a mix of both of them because Carlos was already an old man when Hemingway knew him. He'd been a fisherman for 40 years And Gregorio shares a similar background with the character Santiago in the novel. So could be a combination, could just be made up. But whether or not Santiago is based on a specific person, this book is definitely influenced by his time at sea on this boat. So major characters. Like I said, Santiago is the old man. He's a very good fisherman, probably the best in his town. He's very respected in his town. He's very prideful, very determined, very, um, he has a lot of stamina, we'll say that. I definitely couldn't do what he's about to do. He's very at one with the sea and respects the sea and considers, you know, the flying fish to be his friends. He's very isolated. His wife died And so he lives alone, and basically the only human interaction he has is with this boy, whose name is Manolin. So the boy, Manolin, he's a young boy. He's previously worked for Santiago on his boat, but recently Santiago has gone into an 84-day unlucky streak of not catching any fish. And so Manolin's parents forced him to stop fishing with Santiago because... They didn't think it was worth the effort. 
And so he is now working with another man who he doesn't really like as much as Santiago. And he wants to keep working with Santiago, but his parents have forced him not to. He's a very sweet boy. He basically takes care of Santiago. He's the only reason that he that Santiago eats. Santiago doesn't really have any money. And so the boy takes care of him, helps him in the evenings, carry his things back from the boat. So I'm going to move on to themes. I'm not going to talk about the themes right now. I'm just going to mention them. And then at the end, we'll go in depth on the themes. So the themes that I want you to look out for are pride, defeat, friendship, and there is a Christian allegory to this book. And I think it's a pretty obvious one, but watch out for that as well. So let's get into chapters. Actually, (laughs) there are no chapters. So I've split it up into days. So there's five days of the story. So day one, I am reading from, let's see what, it's like vintage classics. I got it actually, well, that's fun. I got it at Shakespeare and Company in Paris when I was there. These are the page numbers I'm going off of. I don't know what your page numbers are, so good luck. But day one is pages three through 15. Okay, so the story follows an old fisherman named Santiago. He lives in Cuba near Havana in a small town and he fishes off the coast every day. A young boy named Manolin used to fish with him every day, like I said, but Santiago has gone 84 days without catching a fish, so Manolin's parents made him stop fishing with him. And they call Santiago a word in Spanish, I think you say it, salao, which means the worst form of unlucky. Santiago doesn't have a lot of money, and his sails are made out of flower sacks that have been sewn together. On page three, it says it looked like the flag of permanent defeat. The odds are stacked against him from the beginning, basically. But he is a very good fisherman. Manolin loves him and still helps him by bringing him food and taking care of him and bringing him baits and things like that. But Manolin has to fish with another man. And this other man has been very successful recently. So Santiago is described on page four. It says everything about him was old except his eyes. They were the same color as the sea and were cheerful and undefeated. And his eyes are brought up a lot. His like eyesight is very good. The way they describe his eyes is how I would describe him. Very cheerful and undefeated. He does not give up. So the story opens on the 84th day of no fish for Santiago. He comes back into shore and the boy helps him unpack his boat and take his things back up to his shack. And the boy tells him, He wants to start fishing with him again, but Santiago tells him that he needs to obey his father's wishes. And the boy says, you know, my dad has no faith. And Santiago says, but we have. So they have a drink together and the other fishermen on the docks sort of make fun of Santiago, but he doesn't get bothered by it. He's very isolated, like I said. He's alienated by his peers. And while there is a sort of respect for him, because he's gone 84 days without a fish, they've started, you know, making fun of him. So the boy and the old man are reminiscing of their years fishing together. They've been fishing together since the boy was five years old. And the boy asks him if he can bring the old man bait for tomorrow. The old man tries to refuse but eventually allows him to bring him two bait fish. The narrator says that in the past, the old man would never have done this. He never would have taken bait from the boy, but he had gained humility at some point as he grew older. 
and it says on page six, he knew it was not disgraceful and it carried no loss of pride to have humility. So he tells the boy that he can bring him bait and that he's going to go far out to sea to fish tomorrow. And the boy asks him if he thinks he's strong enough to reel in a big fish alone. And Santiago says he thinks so. The two take Santiago's gear back to his shack and the old man carries the mast on his shoulder. So a mast is like the thing that holds up the sail and it's shaped like a cross, like the cross that Christ was crucified on. I told you there was a Christian allegory here. So the imagery of this is obviously linked to Christ carrying the cross on his back and that sort of Christ figure allegory comes up a lot in this. Santiago is seen as a sort of Christ figure. So Santiago's shack is very small and only has a bed, a table, a chair, and a small place to cook. There's pictures on the wall of Jesus and the Virgin, the patroness of Cuba. There used to be a photo of his late wife who died, but the old man took it down because it made him sad. And the narrator tells us that this is the nightly routine for the old man and the boy. Though they don't acknowledge this, the boy asks him what he's going to eat. The old man tells him yellow rice and fish, but the boy knows that there's no fish and there's no rice. It says on page nine, they went through this fiction every day. So the old man reads his newspaper, especially the baseball scores. He's obsessed with Joe DiMaggio. And the boy leaves to go get the bait and goes to get dinner for both of them because otherwise Santiago is not going to eat. The food is from Martin, who is the cafe owner in town. The boy says it was a gift. And the old man is, says, you know, I must thank him, repay the kindness. And the boy tells him this isn't the first time that Martin has given them food. And the old man is grateful. So they discuss baseball. Santiago, like I said, huge Joe DiMaggio fan, calls him the great DiMaggio throughout the book. And one of the reasons he loves Joe DiMaggio is because his father was a fisherman, as were many generations of DiMaggio's before him. And he really wants to take Joe DiMaggio fishing. He thinks that he is the greatest baseball player of all time. And the boy tells Santiago that he is the best fisherman of all time. He says on page 14, there are many good fishermen and some great ones, but there is only you. The old man tells the boy that when he was his age, he was on a ship that went to Africa and he saw lions on the beach at night. Anyway, the boy leaves. The old man promises to wake him up in the morning, just like every other morning. And the old man goes to sleep and dreams of the lions playing on African beaches. Okay, day two. In my book, it's pages 16 through 39. The old man wakes the boy up early the next morning and the two carry Santiago's gear back down to his boat and they have a cup of coffee on the docks. The old man always carries his mast himself. Like I said, this symbolizes a Christ figure carrying his own cross. So while they're drinking coffee, the old man thinks about how this coffee will be the only thing he's going to eat that day. The narrator says that for a long time now, eating had bored him, and he only brought a bottle of water onto the boat with him, and the only meal he ate was at night with the boy. So they say goodbye and good luck, and the old man rows away from shore. It's very early in the morning, by the way. It's, like, still dark outside. So the old man, like I said, he has a deep connection and respect for the sea. He loves the sea, and he considers the sea a woman. On page 19, it says he always thought of the sea as Lamar, 
which is what people call her in Spanish when they love her. Sometimes those who love her say bad things of her, but they are always said as though she were a woman. And the younger fishermen these days refer to the ocean as the masculine form. They spoke of the ocean as a contestant or a place or even an enemy. The old man always thought of her as feminine and as something that gave or withheld great favors. And if she did wild or wicked things, it was because she could not help them. The moon affects her as it does a woman, he thought. He also thinks of the flying fish as his friends. They literally fly out of the water. And so they're the only fish that he interacts with, so to say, so that he thinks of them as his friends. And we can see here why the boy loves and respects Santiago as he does, because he's an expert in the sea. He can read the sky. He can read the sea. He knows exactly the creatures that are there, what they mean, who's going to come and try to eat them, their tendencies. He knows that, you know, certain clouds in the sky mean something. He's just very, very smart. He knows that when he sees flying fish, that means there are dolphins nearby. And so he drops some bait into the water. He's very experienced. He's very precise. He drops multiple lines and all of them are at different depths. And he knows at all times how deep they are, which one is the depth that it is, and he can tell by looking at them. It also is important to point out that these fishing lines are as thick around as a big pencil, and they're very strong. They're not like dinky little fishing lines that you fish in a river with. They're, you know, deep sea fishing lines. They're very thick. He rows farther and farther away from the shore as the sun comes up, He complains about the sun in his eyes, but even as an old man, like I said, he still has perfect vision, even in darkness. He watches a bird as it scouts the sea to find a fish. He follows the bird and uses him to find some tuna. So that's the kind of thing that he does. He sees a bird. He knows it's tracking a fish. He follows the bird. So he keeps following behind the bird, and he sees what's called a Portuguese man of war jellyfish and you should google this because they're super cool looking a portuguese man of war jellyfish so the top half of them floats above the surface like a purple and blue bubble and underneath is like its tentacles is that what you is that what you call jellyfish things anyway and he the old man sees the jellyfish and in spanish he says you whore And this is exactly how I feel about jellyfish. So I feel him on this. He does admire their beauty. Like I said, you need to Google them because they're really, really cool looking. But he loves to watch turtles eating them. So apparently they can't sting turtles. And so the turtles just like swallow them whole. He loves and respects turtles, feels sad for them because a lot of people don't respect them. And then it does say, though, that he actually does eat turtle eggs for strength which is weird and also he drinks a cup of shark liver oil every day which is apparently good for your eyes like they have a big bucket on the dock of shark liver oil and people just like put a cup in and drink it It sounds so disgusting to me okay so he's following the bird still and after a while he catches a 10 pound tuna And he says it will be good for bait for a bigger fish. So he sets it aside. He talks out loud to himself at sea. And he wonders when he began that habit. 
and it was probably after the boy stopped fishing with him. Anyway, he's now sailed so far out that he can no longer see the shore. Finally, a large fish starts to tug on one of his bait lines, and he patiently waits as it tugs, and it says on 29 he knew exactly what it was. So by the tug on the bait line, he can tell that it's a marlin. For reference, marlin weigh hundreds of pounds. So the fish plays with the bait for a while before taking it. And once he can tell that the fish has swallowed the hook enough, he pulls hard on the line. He pulled and pulled, but he couldn't gain any line because the fish weighed so much. So the fish then starts to pull the boat out to sea, just farther and farther out to sea. And the man braces the line with his back. So he like puts it over his shoulder and like leans against it to hold the weight of it. And he holds the line as tight as he can with his back and his hands. So just imagine a pencil-thick cord cutting into your flesh on your hands like he, and, and on your back. He's just like holding on for dear life as this multiple hundreds pounds fish <laughs> pulls him farther out to sea. And I just, the entire book is so infuriating to me because I'm like, just let the fish go just cut it loose cut the fish loose why do you have to keep him he's way too big anyway we'll get into that later the old man though is thinking you know the fish can't swim forever but all day the fish swims out farther and farther and this goes on into the night on page 33 it says about the old man he tried not to think but only endure again think Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. All through the night, suffering in pain, trying not to think, just enduring. So he's pulled farther out to sea. The lights of Havana fade in the distance as the fish continues to pull him out. And the old man wishes he could see the marlin to know what he's up against. But the fish never changes course. He never changes direction. He doesn't jump. He just swims all night farther out to sea. Over and over again, the man wishes the boy were with him. He says on page 34, no one should be alone in their old age. The old man then begins to pity the marlin, and he wonders if he has been hooked before, and he wonders if the marlin knows that the way to win this fight is slow and steady. And he says on 35, I wonder if he has any plans or if he is just as desperate as I am. The old man thinks about a time when he hooked a female marlin, She was with her mate, a male marlin, and the male marlins apparently let the females feed first. And so the female fish got hooked, tried to get out, couldn't, and the male stayed with her the entire time, which is so sweet and sad. And even as the old man and the boy reeled in this female marlin, the male one stayed by her side. And when she was hauled into the boat, he jumped to see her one last time and then disappeared into the deep and on 36 it says he was beautiful the old man remembered and he had stayed and he remembers this as the saddest thing he'd ever seen with fish and the boy had begged to let the female marlin go but the old man killed her anyway okay so day three in my book the pages are 40 to 62 The sun begins to rise. The fish is still swimming farther out to sea. Santiago can't pull hard on the line or the line will break. 
And so he's just hoping that the fish will tire soon (laughs) or jump in the air so that the air like in his pockets, I don't know how, I don't know the anatomy of fish, but apparently if he jumps, he'll fill up with air and that will slow him down. And so the old man can literally do nothing except hold on. (laughs) On page 38, he says, fish, I'll stay with you until I am dead. Again, just like cut the freaking line. Imagine how far out shore he is now. The fish has been pulling him for like 20 hours. Anyway, he tells the fish that he loves and respects it, but will kill it. On page 40, he says, fish, I love you and respect you very much, but I will kill you dead before this day ends. The fish lurches forward at one point and almost pulls the man overboard. And that's when he notices that his hand is bleeding from the line. And he forces himself to eat that tuna that he caught the day before for strength. And he struggles to, you know, hold the line and feed himself at the same time, cut the fish open, all that stuff. And he gets super frustrated that his body is so weak. And his hand starts cramping. And he hopes that it will uncramp when the sun comes up. It's still very early morning. He notices that the fish is very calm and wishes that he would jump. On page 44, the old man says, but if he stays down forever, then I will stay down with him forever. Finally, the fish jumps into the air and the old man sees just how big it is. It's bigger than he thought. It is two feet longer than his boat. So at this point, you know, a rational person might say, hmm, this fish is bigger than my friggin' boat. I can't reel him in because I'm not strong enough. I can't even put him in the boat because my boat will sink. He won't fit into my boat. So maybe I should just like cut my losses at this point and try to find a fish that's not so freaking big. He doesn't. He doesn't cut the line. He just knows that if he can't slow the fish down, the line will break soon. And on page 47, he says, he is a great fish and I must convince him. I must never let him learn his strength, nor what he could do if he made a run for it. So the old man has caught a 1,000 pound fish before, but not alone. And now he's alone. It says on 47, alone and out of sight of the land. He was fast to the biggest fish that he had ever seen and bigger than he had ever heard of. He knows that the fish jumped to show him how big he is to show the old man how big he is and how great he is. And the old man says on 48, let him think I am more man than I am and I will be so. So his hand uncramps and he tells the fish that this is bad news for him. The old man is not religious, but he says 10 Hail Marys and he promises that if he can catch this fish, he will make the journey to the Virgin de Cobra, which like I said in the beginning, is the patroness of Cuba. And this journey from Havana area to Santiago, where the patroness of Cuba is, is about 550 miles. Probably would take weeks to get there. This is the first reference of Christianity. And it's where, you know, if you're reading for the first time, you would think, okay, maybe this is a Christian parable. He puts another line out to catch food for himself in case the fish keeps going through the night, which he does. The old man is still shocked at how big the fish is. 
He still is determined to kill the fish, though. It says, in all his greatness and his glory, I will show him what a man can do and what a man endures. And that's on page 49. The old man rests on the boat as best as he can while still holding the line, (laughs) wishing the fish would sleep. His hand is no longer cramped, but he has bad cuts in his back and his hands where the line was digging into him. And he thinks about the great DiMaggio and how he played perfectly even though he had a bone spur in his heel. And he thinks he must be like the great DiMaggio to be worthy of him. And his only worry is that the sharks will come. He says on 51, if sharks come, God pity him and me. He means the fish and himself. As he gets more tired and weak, he remembers a time when he was very strong. It was when he was younger. He challenged the strongest man on the docks to an arm wrestle. And they stayed hands locked for days with no sleep, trying to weaken each other. It was like a full 36 hours of arm wrestling. And they had to change referees every few hours so that the refs could rest. And finally, Santiago, who wasn't an old man then, beat the strongest man. And for a long time after that, everyone called him the champion. And in that moment, he decided that he could beat anyone if he wanted to badly enough. And this is where we get this prideful situation where he won't let this freaking fish go. Okay, during the night, he hooked another fish for eating and pulls it onto the boat, kills it, whatever. He notices that the big fish has slowed a little bit. And so he puts the oars in the water to slow him down even more. He says on 56, how do you feel, fish? I feel good and my left hand is better. And I have food for a night and a day. Pull the boat, fish. He's like challenging him. Like, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? But the pain in his back from the line has now turned from pain to dullness And this worries him a little bit, but he ignores it. And he thinks about the pain and hunger the fish must be going through, not being able to stop. And he says on 58 about the fish, he says the punishment of the hook is nothing. The punishment of hunger and that he is against something that he does not comprehend is everything. And the old man eats, rests as much as he can And he sets up the line to like a place where he can hopefully sleep for a little bit. Okay, day four. This is the longest day. It's page 62 to 95 and it's intense. So the old man wakes up to the fish jerking on the line as he jumps again and again. So the man is pulled forward. His hand is bleeding super bad and he wishes again that the boy was with him. The fish jumps many times filling his body with more and more air and that slows him down a lot and the old man knows from the fish's behavior that he's going to start circling soon so he rinses his hands in the water trying to clean his cuts and tells himself that it's not that bad and he says and pain does not matter to a man he eats the last flying fish he has it says on page 65 the sun was rising for the third time since he had put to sea when the fish started to circle So, fish starts circling, and every time he circles, the old man pulls the line as much as he can. So he's just pulling him closer and closer in. 
He feels weak and he feels faint, but he keeps going. He starts seeing black spots and the fish gets closer and closer to the boat. He keeps praying for strength to finish this now. He's so close to winning and he sees the fish pass close under the boat and he thinks again, he cannot be that big, but he was that big. The old man waits for like a few more circles before he gets the harpoon ready to kill the fish and he pulls harder and harder and the fish is still fighting. The old man says to him on page 70, fish, you are going to have to die anyway. Do you have to kill me too? The old man tells himself that he is good and strong enough to do this forever. But on 71, he says, you are killing me, fish, but you have a right to. Never have I seen a great or more beautiful or calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. He just has a mutual respect for the fish. I think that's pretty obvious. But at this point, he's like, it's me or you, man. Like, I'm dying or you're dying and I don't care which one. The old man tells himself to clear his head and focus. It says on 72, he took all his pain and whatever was left of his strength and his long gone pride and he put it against the fish's agony and the fish came over onto its side and swam gently on its side. And that's what he's been waiting for. He's been trying to pull the fish to be on his side so that he could stab him. And so he drops the line quickly, lifts the harpoon, and drives it into the fish's side with all of his strength. And then it says on 72, then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and beauty. And then he dies, the fish dies. So the old man pulls the boat closer to the fish and he ties the fish to the side of the boat because it's too big to fit inside of the boat so he latches it to the side which again it's longer than his boat I don't quite understand you know the dynamics of boats but I feel like if a thousand plus pound fish is tied to one side of your boat it might tip but I don't I guess I don't know I don't know the anatomy of fish I don't know the dynamics of boats maybe I should have googled that before i did this episode. Anyway, so he ties the fish to the boat and he begins his journey home. He starts calculating how much money he could make from the fish's meat and he thinks about how the great DiMaggio would have been proud. So he puts the mast up and the sail and he guides the boat towards the land. On the way home, he catches some shrimp to eat. He has only two large gulps of water left for the trip home. He tries not to be worried about his hands. He thinks they will heal quickly, but his head is still foggy. And he wonders to himself if the fish is bringing him to shore or vice versa. It says on page 76, they were sailing together, lashed side by side. The old man sees that there's cumulus clouds in the sky. And that means that the wind will blow all night. Like I said, he's just like an expert in like the sea and the air and the sky and the land. And so he knows that he can maybe like get home quicker. But he kept looking at the fish to make sure it was real. It was like purple and blue and beautiful. And an hour later, the first shark comes. He came from the deep below and jumped, you know, you know how sharks come from deep below and like 
try to eat something he missed, but he like came up next to the boat. It was a big mako shark. It says on 77, built to swim as fast as the fastest fish in the sea, and everything about him was beautiful except his jaws. So mako sharks are freaking huge, and this shark is literally built to eat any fish in the sea. They're super strong, super fast, and they don't have any enemy. So the old man gets his harpoon ready. When the shark comes back, he comes fast to bite at the fish, and the old man sinks the harpoon into his head and kills the shark, which is crazy. Like, this old man just killed a freaking shark. It says on 78, the old man's head was clear and good now, and he was full of resolution, but he had little hope. It was too good to last, he thought. So the shark dies, sinks slowly below the surface, but not before taking a 40-pound bite out of the marlin's meat. So the marlin's fresh blood from being bitten is definitely going to attract more sharks, and the old man is afraid, and he fears that this was all in vain. And I think maybe it was. <laughs> it's just crazy. I Like, just let the freaking fish go. He knows there's no way to keep this marlin intact all the way home. And he wishes that this had all been a dream. He says on page 80, But man is not made for defeat. A man can be destroyed but not defeated. And the old man begins in this moment to feel sorry that he killed the fish because they, things are about to get worse. And again, just unhook the freaking fish and let it sink and go home. <sighs> okay, the old man starts thinking about Joe DiMaggio again. He wonders if his injuries, like his hands and his back, compared to a bone spur, which I would say probably. I don't know what a bone spur feels like, but having like open wounds on your hands and your back sound pretty terrible. And he knows that sharks are going to come, but he's lost his harpoon because he sunk it into the shark's head. And so he latches a knife to the end of one of his oars so that he can have a weapon. And he tries to be hopeful. And he thinks about whether or not it was a sin to kill this fish. And he tries to tell himself that he killed the fish in order to feed many people, but he knows that's not true. He knows he killed that fish because of pride. It says on page 82, you killed him for pride and because you are a fisherman. You loved him when he was alive and you loved him after. If you love him, it is not a sin to kill him or is it more? So he killed the fish for pride, not for food. And so now he's feeling a little bit sorry. He's feeling sorry basically because this fish is being ruined now and so it was kind of all for naught. So a few hours later more sharks come and I think that they are called bullnosed sharks and there's two of them and the old man makes a noise. It says on page 83 there is no translation for this noise and perhaps it is just a noise such as a man might make involuntarily feeling the nail go through his hands and into the wood. So this is another reference to Christ. And the sharks attack the marlin, and the man stabs them both repeatedly with a knife. And he ends up killing them, but they eat about a quarter of the marlin before they die. The man wishes again that he hadn't killed the fish, and he apologizes to it. And he, he wonders what he should do now. Well, 
what you should do now, what you should have done when the first fish came, or maybe after the first day of the fish pulling you out to sea, is cut the mother freaking thing loose. So another shark comes. Of course. There's blood everywhere. And the old man kills it, but he loses the knife in the process. So now he's killed four sharks. He's a freaking beast. Two more sharks come in the night. The old man hits him with the club. They eventually leave, but not until they eat more of the marlin. The old man is tired. He's out of energy. And he hopes, he's just hoping at this point that he can make it home with at least a little bit of meat left. And he apologizes to the fish again. And he thinks about home and his village and how many people would have been worried about him. And he says, I live in a good town. So he talks to the fish, blaming himself for going out too far for this whole thing. And he says, half fish, fish that you were, I am sorry that I went out. I went too far out. I ruined us both. But we have killed many sharks, you and I, and ruined many others. But how many did you ever kill, old fish? You do not have that spear on your head for nothing. That's on page 89. So he's feeling bad about catching this fish and now it's being ruined but the old man promises to fight the sharks until he dies at this point he's like this is my only option i'm gonna fight these sharks until i get home even if that means that i die and i just don't i guess i just don't get that he sees the lights of havana in the distance and he knows there's going to be more sharks it says on 91 But what can a man do against them in the dark without a weapon? I don't, I don't know. Uh, Maybe get rid of the fish? Like imagine being in a boat. A boat that's small enough that a fish is bigger than it. And sharks are just coming at you. If there's anything you can do to stop the freaking sharks from coming, you do it. So you take the fish off your boat, let it go. I don't know. I I guess I just have like a really big fear of sharks. And so this just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I'm ruining the whole like pride theme of this book. Obviously, it's because of pride. Obviously, he's not letting the fish go because of pride. Moving on. So at midnight, another pack of sharks come. Yes, I did say pack. A pack of sharks come. And the old man fights them off as best as he can. But they eat the entirety of the fish before they leave. And the old man spits into the water and he tastes blood, which is obviously concerning, but he tries not to think about it. But he spits at the shark and says, eat that and make a dream you've killed a man. He sits in the boat. He has no fight left. On 93, it says he sailed lightly now and had no thoughts nor any feelings of any kind. He was past everything. He thinks of what it was that beat him, and he says, nothing, I went too far out. So he's blaming all of it on, like, his pride for going out too far. That was the reason that all of this happened. And he gets to shore. The fish is still tied to the boat. I mean, there's no meat on it, but it's just bones. Like the skeleton of the fish is tied to the boat and ties up his boat, takes the mast down, puts it on his shoulder and starts going up the hill to his shack. He falls once and he laid there for a while before getting up and walking again. And he had to sit another five times before getting home. So again, this is 
Christ, right? He suffered all night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the next morning, he carries the cross on his back to his death. So the old man is just carrying the cross up the hill to his house, not to his death, to his house. All right, day five, last day, pages 95 through 99. The boy, Manolin is his name, comes to the old man's shack early in the next morning. When the boy sees his hands, he cries. So when the old man laid on his bed at night, he laid face down with his palms up. So when the boy comes, he can see his hands and he cries and he leaves to go get some coffee and comes back and waits for him to wake up. But down at the docks while he's getting coffee, the other fishermen have gathered around the old man's boat and they're measuring the skeleton of the marlin. It's 18 feet. The boy had already been down there once before and he had asked another fisherman to keep an eye on the boat for him. And so he's down there watching the boat while the other men are like salivating at this freaking huge fish skeleton. They ask how the old man is and the boy tells them he's sleeping and that no one should disturb him. The man working at the cafe tells the boy he's never seen such a fish and asks the boy to tell the old man he's sorry. So the boy waits for the old man to wake up and they talk quietly. The old man tells him about the sharks and how they beat him. And the boy tells him that the fish didn't beat him though. And he tells him that a man named Pedrico is the fisherman who's looking after the boat and the fish. And he asks the old man what he wants to do with the head. He tells him to give it to Pedrico to chop and use for fish traps. And he tells the boy that the spear, like the nose of the fish, is for him, for the boy. He asks if anyone searched for him. And the boy tells him that there was a huge search. The Coast Guard went and there were planes, but they couldn't find him. And the man is happy to be home with the boy. He tells him that he missed him. And the boy insists on working with the old man from now on, no matter what his parents say. He tells the old man to let his hands heal and he'll prepare everything for them to sail again together as soon as he's better. He says, you know, get well soon because there's so much I need to learn from you. He asks the old man how much he suffered. And the old man says, plenty. The boy leaves to get him food and the newspaper from the days that he was gone. And when he's down at the docks again, there's some tourists there and they mistake the boned fish on the boat for a shark. That's how big he is. And the old man sleeps in his shack, dreams of the lions on the beach while the boy is watching over him. And that's the end. All right, I'm going to go over themes quickly so we can be done with this book. Okay. The first theme is pride. So pride is obviously the old man's fatal flaw. He is aware of his pride and that it is his fault. He blames his pride for the reason the Marlin is dead and the reason they were both in the position that they're in. And he says over and over again, I went too far out. He tries to say that he killed the Marlin for food, but he knows that's a lie. But of course, pride is the reason he went so far out. He'd gone so long without catching a fish. He wanted to go out farther. Pride is the reason he wouldn't just cut the fish loose. But it's also the reason that he's still alive and that he made it back to shore with this 18-foot skeleton of a fish. I don't know <laughs> I don't know many people who would have the pride and determination to go through this journey. So the boy tells the old man, you know, in the beginning that he's the best fisherman. Santiago dismisses it 
being the best fisherman, that's not how he's prideful. He's prideful in that he doesn't give up even when he should. And he wants to show the boy what a man can do and what a man endures. And the lesson here is not to not be prideful. Hemingway is showing, you know, what a man can accomplish through pride and that pride can bring about greatness. Reading this book infuriates me every time if you couldn't tell throughout it. Like, why can't you just cut the fish loose? But that's the point, right? Santiago begins the book with the determination to catch a fish, preferably a large fish, because he's on day 84 of no fish. And he goes out farther than he should. He catches a fish larger than his boat, larger than he can reel in. He lets the fish take him farther and farther out to sea for three full days, gets cuts in his hands and his back. And then when he finally reels the fish in, he's attacked by so many sharks, kills at least four of them, still does not cut the fish loose. So the point is that I don't have that kind of determination But Santiago is willing to die to bring this fish in. And at every challenge, he chooses to fight and not give up. And Hemingway's story shows us that in the end, even though Santiago didn't successfully bring the fish back intact, he just has a skeleton, that he still has his honor. And that glory comes from seeing a challenge to the end, even if it doesn't end up the way you wanted it to. And Santiago's battle those five days at sea is where his glory and honor came from. He never gave up. And that's the point of the theme of pride. (laughs) Okay, the second theme is defeat. Is there honor in defeat? Of course there is. But how does this novel show it specifically? So in the beginning of the novel, we learn that Santiago has gone 84 days without catching a fish. How many times am I going to say that? And is close to beating his own record, which is 87 days. And that's actually, he ties his record. He catches his fish on the 87th day. But he refuses to give up and he has the respect of all the other fishermen in his village. So during the struggle between the old man and the marlin, we see them both being brave and prideful and refusing to give up. The old man obviously has deep respect for the fish. He has a deep sense of connection with the sea and the creatures in the sea. He understands them. He knows how they work. And he doesn't believe that a man is made for defeat. Like he says in the book, he says, man can be destroyed but not defeated. And he continuously apologizes to the fish on their voyage. He regrets catching the fish, subjecting it to all of the sharks eating it. And the old man is without a doubt the most stubborn man I've ever read in fiction, but he's also relentless and determined. And I feel like most people in this situation could have never reeled in that fish alone, and the patience and determination required to get that fish are unmatched. And that's why the fishermen are so in awe of the fish when they see it tied to his boat. Santiago represents every person in their life challenges. And I just really like how he says, man can be destroyed but not defeated. If you continue through your challenges, your trials, all of that, and get to the end, if you can endure, then you have won. You can't be defeated. Okay, the theme of friendship I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. Santiago's friendship with Manolin is crucial to his victory at sea. Over and over again, he wishes that the boy were with him. He also thinks of the boy and finds strength in knowing that he would be proud of him. And 
the boy is always helping the old man, obviously, in the in his life. He's consistently bringing him food, helping him get home, encouraging him. Santiago is largely isolated in life except for the evenings he spends with the boy. And so that friendship is super important to him. And he says, you know, old men aren't meant to be alone. The book also highlights the old man's friendship with the sea. He sees the flying fish as his friends, the stars as his friends, etc., these friends, you know, the boy, the sea, the fish, the stars, they are what help him through his challenges at the sea. So that's why friendship is obviously important to the story. Okay, last theme is the Christian allegory. So I talked a lot about it already, but Santiago can obviously be seen as a Christ figure. The imagery of Santiago carrying the mast up the hill is matched to Christ carrying the cross. This story can be read as a Christian parable, the cuts on his hands and his back. When he stabs one of the sharks, he makes a noise that the narrator describes as the sound of a man who is being nailed to the wooden cross. Santiago suffers great pain. In certain ways, he is destroyed, but he comes out of this experience no longer a failed fisherman. He is not defeated. And when he returns to shore, he carries the mast on his back again, falls repeatedly. Santiago's struggle at sea mirrors Christ's struggles in the last days. Santiago was able to turn that struggle and loss into triumph. He makes it back to shore after five days of severe struggles at sea. He could have died from so many things. The injuries in his hands, hunger, dehydration, not to mention actual sharks. But he goes through a sort of resurrection at the end when he makes it home to bed and in the morning the boy is there. He regains his companionship with the boy that he greatly missed. So that's the end. I can't say that I don't like this book because I do, but it is very infuriating. (laughs) And I just, like, there's no story if he lets the fish go. And I get it. I get it. But it just makes me mad at every moment. He's like, what am I going to do now? I'm like, just let the freaking fish go. Anyway, that's the end. Go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram. Subscribe on, you know, whatever platform you use. And if you could leave a review, that would be awesome because then I will be higher up on the podcast lists. Thanks for listening and look out for the next one.